invite you now to stand for the reading of the word. It is our custom and tradition here to stand when we read our scripture, our passage for the day that we will study. Today we're reading Psalm 8. This is the new revised standard version, nine verses long. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes so to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are humans? What are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. You have made them humans a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of God. You can be seated. You have one message to give us every week, Pastor. You have one job. Your job is to keep us on the edge of our seats. Your job... <laughs> oh, premature. Want to hear the rest of the story? Your job is to keep us on the edge of our seats. You have one job. Point us towards eternity. Eternity is right around the corner. Pastor, you have one job, and God will hold you accountable. Oh, welcome to La Sierra. <laughs> 2009. Pastor, you have one job. Keep us pointed towards eternity. It's almost eternity time. You have one job. That's the phrase made familiar 20 years ago now. The Ocean's Eleven movie. Do you have the scene in your mind, the, John, the uh, Don Cheadle character, where they've decided, you know, they're going to $160 million from three different casinos, right? And they've gotten all of the work, and they blow the doors off of the safe, and then the alarm rings. And Cheadle says to the crazies, you had one job. All you had to do is... All you had to do was turn off the alarm. We did everything else. We had one job. And memes and Reddit and Twitter and videos and calendars and books. And for 20 years, that has gone crazy. You had one job. It's what we say to someone when we want to point out to them that they executed something rather poorly. Right? You had one job. Because my girls are in the front seat, I told you no stories about you today. But like I thought about it on the way to church. <laughs> You've heard us tell the story of when we moved home from uh, Texas and the girls wanted to go to Las Vegas. Las Vegas, like Ocean's Eleven. And we go to Vegas and because we are, have no money and we are cheap, we stay in the La Quinta Hotel. And the girls like get up and look at the La Quinta Hotel and go, what is this? This is not Las Vegas. We can't even tell our friends we've been here if we had to stay at the La Quinta Hotel. Like, where are the real hotels? That's like a, you had one job moment. Like, take us to Vegas, like the real way. Let's imagine 
there is one message every week when we gathered. What would it be? Well, we can just go have potluck now. I take my cue from Psalm 8. This is the passage we read when I joined you in 2009 in my new role then as the lead pastor. This is the passage we read that day. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. I take my cue from this poem. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, I am not a specialist in Hebrew poetry. That's a loss for all of us, by the way. And also, it's a poem, so I don't want to analyze it. I want to let it work on us this morning. Oh, Lord, our sovereign... This poem is like a lyric, so think of it as your favorite hymn or praise song, whatever you hit on repeat when you're trying to have a moment of worship. This is Psalm 8. This poem is like a lyric for a song. After seven psalms, Psalm 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, seven psalms of languishing and lament, seven psalms of doom and disaster, seven psalms of honest to honest to honest to God, then we get Psalm 8 that says, oh, look at God. This is Psalms 8. Oh, everyone, look at God, O oh Lord, our sovereign. How majestic is your name. You're higher than the highest of heavens. Well, where is that? Isaiah and Revelation talk of God seated in the throne of heaven, but where's higher than the heavens? Where's the highest heavens? Some translations call this the highest heavens. Can anyone imagine or can anyone go higher? Where is that highest, highest space? Every human sound, says the poet, even the sounds of babies, the most vulnerable and the weakest members of society, even cooing babies know God is strong. Even cooing babies know God masters the chaos. Even cooing babies know God is the divine monarch seated in the highest space in our story. Everything else falls under God's care. Even babies know, the poet would say to us, do we? Do we? In only two verses, the poet sets things straight, straight for us. Our lives revolve around God. That's it. This, by the way, is why I belong to a faith community, because I need to be reminded of this every week. I need a space where someone tells me and where we sing lyric and where we open scripture and my story gets reoriented. The poet now in the next verse turns this this uh, lament, a little more, it sounds individual, but it's still a plural voice speaking for all of us. He or she says, and by the way, we'll move to Eugene Peterson's lively translation, the message paraphrase. I look, we look, upon the macro skies, the dark and enormous, your handiwork, sky jewelry moon and stars mounted in their settings. And, and then I look at my micro self and I wonder, why do you bother with us? And why do you take a second look our way? This is not, by the way, a general philosophical question. What are humans? What are humans anyhow? Why is it that we can think and reason? What does this mean? This is not a general scientific question. What are humans in relationship to other creatures and animals? How are we alike? And how are we different? Oh, no, no. This is not that question. This is what are humans in relationship to God? What are humans that God would look towards us? What are humans that God visits and remembers us regularly? Who are we in relationship to God? 
poet continues, verse 5. Yet we've so narrowly missed being gods, humans, we've so narrowly missed it. Bright with Eden's dawn, you put us in charge of your handicrafted world. You repeated to us your Genesis charge. You made us stewards of sheep and cattle, even animals out of the wild, birds flying and fish swimming and whales singing in the ocean deep. Can you imagine, the poet asked, that God put the moon and the stars thus and so and then gave us great seats in the stadium of the universe? Like, what was the stadium seat you would have taken if the Dodgers won? <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> I'm going to Portland on Tuesday because I can. I looked up the prices of the Blazer tickets. I looked at my brothers here today, my sister, my brother, my, my whole family's right here in the front row. <laughs> Leroy, I almost called you. He lives in the Portland area. Like, how much would we pay to see the Blazers from the very top of the building of the Moda Center? The psalmist says God gave us a brilliant seat in the stadium of the universe, church. That's how we matter to God. That's how God is mindful of us. And then God put boundaries in place in this story. This is not an anything goes. It's not front row seats and we get to do as we please. It's not my whim or it my preference. God gave us a front row seat because we are now gonna steward God's agendas in the world. There are boundaries, there are tasks. So we're given dominion, not domination. We're given responsibility to rule, not ruin. We embody subordination, but not subjugation. We demonstrate cooperation, not competition. That's what happens when God asks us to steward the agendas of God in this world. We belong to God and it obligates us to belong in specific ways now to one another and to God's created world, all of it. It's a realignment, again, it's why I come to church and why I need a spiritual community. Kirby and I will need a church. We can't, we can't be churchless the rest of our lives. Friends, this is why I have a spiritual community. Church is the alternative narrative in the world, to the world, because in the world my days are oriented to what I accomplish and what I achieve. In the world, I am in the center of the story. In the world, it's about the benchmarks I need to hit. It's about what I'm up to. In the world, it is really all about me. We were talking as a family a few days ago, knowing the kids were coming to town, the, the adult children were coming to town. <laughs> I need to move out of the office. And I told my family, you know, it's, you know when the President of the United States is inaugurated, there's a whole crew that goes in and changes the White House out? Isn't that the coolest thing? Like a crew comes in and packs you up, and while nobody's looking, wouldn't it be great if while nobody's looking during church, somebody could just move us out of the office, out of sight, out of mind? And someone in my family said, way to equate yourself with the President of the universe, Mom, <laughs> or the President of the country. Yeah, sure, just get your little moving crew. But that is how it goes in our lives. You tell me if I'm not telling the truth. My days are ordered according to my thriving. And part of this is necessary. We have to feed our children and we need a paycheck, et cetera, et cetera. And also, 
It is about my achievements and my preferences. It is about my friends and my family. It's the way I decide to organize my weekend and my vacations and, and, and my extra cash. My life really works according to me. Whether I'm a student, a kid on the playground looking to make more friends, I'm an athlete hoping to win a competition. Good luck, La Sierra Academy boys, men's team tonight. There's a competition. We would never go to the competition and say, we don't care. We want to win tonight. The world is ordered this way. Educators, you have learning objectives and outcomes you need to hit. Business owners, there are benchmarks. Healthcare artists, you want to make humans whole. Business owners, employees of all kind, we need to bring home a paycheck while we're at it. Our lives are really about us day by day by day. And then at the first crisis or first convenience, I work God into my story. I'm telling you how it goes for me. At the first crisis or convenience, I pause. I'm like, well, I checked off all my things today. Now, maybe, God, how are you doing today? But Psalm 8 says, hold up there. This is about God. Give God the front row seat. So Apollo 11, 1969, when the astronauts hit that moon dirt, they took with them an olive branch and an American flag and a plaque and a one and a half millimeter silicone disc that they placed into the sand. There are messages from 73 nations all around the world. 1969, pretty great that we could do that. And a piece of scripture courtesy of the Vatican. The scripture on the little disc inserted into the earth, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic. So when President Nixon wanted to talk to the astronauts, here's part of his congratulatory message. He's in his office now and would like to say a few words to you, over. Be an honor. Uh, go ahead, Mr. President. This is Houston out. Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made from the White House. I just can't tell you how proud we all are of what you have done. For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure that they too join with Americans in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. And as you talk to us from the sea of tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to Earth. It's a beautiful congratulatory message, particularly about peace for all Earth. But did you notice the subtle and simple difference? Because of what you've done, because of what you've done, President Nixon says, you have allowed heavens into man's world. Apparently, the passage of scripture on the disk in the soil on the moon wasn't read. You, you let you let the heavens into my world? Oh, no, 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 oh, no, no, this is God's world. This, these are God's heavens already. We can simply now see them differently, right? 
It's simple, simple and subtle, and it makes a dramatic difference in our lives. Everything in our life is about God. You have one job, pastor. You have one job. Keep us on the edge of our seats. Stir us up a little. Scare us if you have to. I had parents of university students tell me, Pastor Jason, can you believe this? Scare my kids while they're here in school. If you have to scare them, scare them. I'm like, time out. No, I sent them to a Christian college. Scare them if you have to. We're on the edge of eternity. Scare my children. I also believe I have one job every single week. My microphone is on. I absolutely do, church. I simply think that my job is to point our faces towards God. And there is a big difference. To shake people up, to stir up frenzy, even abuse over the second coming. Friends, Adventist Christianity, we have our own history with this. When you have been 167 years in the second coming waiting room, not all denominations, but that's our story. Since 1844, we've been in the second coming waiting room. So we have some experience and we have some trauma on this topic. Being in the second coming waiting room certainly has shaped us. And some of us developed an emotional sequencing and a theological sequencing that's harmful and wrong. So that when we don't feel good about ourselves, maybe there is shame or guilt. And we've said so many times, shame doesn't belong in our story. And guilt can be our teacher. But when we don't feel right before God, we tell ourselves we'll repent and ask for forgiveness and try harder and work it out with God. And we do this salvation dance as if we fall in and out of salvation regularly. We've taught ourselves this signaling. And please hear me today. A low-grade apocalyptic fever is good for no one. Especially if that's how we interpret the apocalypse. Doesn't bring out the best in any of us. I consider it spiritual extortion. Here's a meme popular the last few months I've shared with several teenagers that I've studied the Bible with. Check that out. My evangelical parents say to me, why are you so scared all the time? And 10-year-old me says, the rapture, going to hell, angels, exorcism, spiritual warfare, scary Carmen videos. Committing an unpardonable sin, forced proselytizing, purity. My 10-year-old self is scared to death. New research on this topic, and it's mind-boggling. Telling people that they're in danger and then selling something, selling people something to solve the danger. This is a special business. This is what pandemic politics is all about, by the way telling people they're in danger and then selling them solution to their danger. But it bleeds over into evangelical Christianity in America. We are not out of these scary apocalyptic nightmare scenarios. There's fresh wind moving around our country, fresh life. So why is it that Christians really do rally around conspiracies? Why is it that conspiracies boost support and donations and likes and shares, yet we cannot raise a concern about the condition of jails and housing in our country? 
Why is it that Christians have this fear about going to hell before any fear of the, or any responsibility of the task of eliminating poverty in our neighborhoods? Why is this? Please notice with me, perhaps unintentionally, when we keep ourselves worked up in a frenzy, I am still in the middle of the story. It's still about me and my fear. Church, this is not our story. We are not a worried people waiting for a bothered God. That's bad church. Bad church is worse than no church. We have worked to not be bad church. We have worked at this. This beautiful team of colleagues over here. We have worked so it would not be bad church. All I asked for God was bring us people who care. Can you please bring us a team of caring pastors who know how to care for each other and care for people? And look what God brought us. It has been my privilege to be in or chairing the search committee for every single one of these pastors. I love them. We have worked to not be bad church. The author John Pavlovitz, he's a pastor. His newest book is called, catch this title, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. You know I buy books just for the title. You know this now over the years. Some books, that I don't even crack them open. They're only on the shelf because I needed the title. If God is love, don't be a jerk. But then I got curious in the chapter in the book that was called The Church of Not Being Horrible. <laughs> the guy's got away with some words here. In the chapter of the church of not being horrible, John Pavlovitz imagines that Jesus comes in all the clouds of glory and before his feet touches the ground, you can see he's exasperated and angry because he says to all of us, you had one job. What were you thinking? And Pavlovitz has a little bit of fun, smart mouthy, trying to figure out how he would answer the question, do people quote Jesus to Jesus? But then he gets serious. And he asks himself the question, how would I answer Jesus if he said, you had one job, knowing what I know, that the only and the primary job description of a disciple is to love God and neighbor and self. So he says, if God is love, and if Jesus is the perfect expression of that love, and if I'm supposedly trying to follow that Jesus, how can I be so love-impaired so frequently? How do I miss the singular point so consistently? One of my answers to this question is get the story right. Get the theology right. 
get it straight between God and humans because when we do that, then we know our relationship humans to humans in this world. Friends, you are beloved of God right now this moment and if you have fear about that or worry about that, lay it down today. You're beloved. And when you know you belong to God, you have everything you need. Thank you, Rick Rice, Dr. Rice, for that line. When you know you belong to God, you have everything you need. I say it a little differently. It's easy to get into God's goods, graces. It's impossible to get out. And I bet my life on that. One of the reasons we say be well around here is to acknowledge that before we live well or do well or serve well or donate well or, or do anything else well or love well, before we do anything, we hold still and know that we belong to God. Be and know and identify ourselves as the beloved of God. Be God's creation. When we say be well, we mean all of that. Be at peace. Have a deep sense of shalom because you belong to God. This is why we say be well. Psalm 8 gives us this indication. Oh, Lord, our Lord, who are we? Oh, we're seated on the edge of the universe of the stadium with you. My favorite message of this idea of be well, this peace and wellness is Theo Sutter many years ago on Easter Sunday morning releasing our dove. Look at this little baby Theo compared to today. There is nothing more hopeful than Easter Sunday when we stand still and name that a resurrected living Jesus is everything. When we hold still and celebrate that, everything else we do in our lives now is a response to. Everything else we do now flows out of. You want to serve well and donate well and, be, and love well? Great, but it all flows out of this primary understanding of who we are and how we belong to God. This belonging to God eventually grows a deep obligation to one another. I hear you, Daphne Thomas. <laughs> Beautiful. We have one job. I have one job. I agree. For 13 years, I banked on the love of God over the fear of God. For 13 years, I banked on the hope that God's love changes me and when you change me, it changes you. For 13 years, I banked on the love of God, that it's the love of God that draws us into one another's stories. I did this knowing we are always on the edge of eternity, friends, that never changes. Today might be our last day, so belong to God today. So I've aligned myself in the deep tradition with the Gospel of John who says perfect love casts out all fear. With C.S. Lewis who says the Gospel can only woo. With Ellen White who says the love of God is more beautiful than we can imagine. With Edward Heppenstall and Morris Vinden, former lead pastors of this church who said it is the generosity of God that secures us and compels us to act. And with Martin Luther King Jr. who says, love is the greatest force in the universe. It's the heartbeat of the moral cosmos. He who loves is a participant in the being of God. I have one job. Very often, I wake up on Sabbath 
startled all over again. I absolutely believe God holds me accountable. And I marvel that I got to do this for these years. We could now tell stories all afternoon about how the generosity of God has activated this congregation. We could tell stories about how the generosity of God has activated friendship circles and Bible study groups and life groups. We could tell stories all afternoon about how you cared for one another in times of needs. We could tell stories about a church that put hundreds of children through school at the academy and the university, about a church that for 100 years has paid bills and built buildings because of the generosity of God. We could tell stories all afternoon, thousands like what happened on Wednesday at the food pantry when the line started early Wednesday morning. Liz Wright let the first person in early. It was, he got in line at seven. The building opens at eight. She opened the door and let him in. He's come for food. He sees us circling up for prayer about a quarter to eight, so he decides to join the prayer circle. So he's standing next to me. I say, good morning, good morning. I'm Chris. He said, hi, I'm Jock. I said, welcome. He said, thank you. Yeah, it was cold outside. She let me in. I said, that's brilliant. And then he said, I just got out of jail last week. I need some help. I heard there's help here. Not a volunteer in the building will flinch at a story like that. We could tell thousands of stories like this all afternoon about the generosity of God. Friends, it's a deep obligation to the wellness of one another that we develop because of the generosity of God. It's a deep obligation about the wellness in the neighborhood in the 92505. This has been what's behind the housing dream that we call Vista de la Sierra. Just down the street here in a few months, we will dig ground. We got word this week that ahead of schedule, all the funding is in place for a $50 million neighborhood to house 80 families. Take a look at what our neighborhood's gonna look like. God knows that's better than what it looks like right now. If you are, wanna be oriented, this is Pierce Street and across the street would be the conference office from this driveway. And if you're standing in the driveway and you, you uh, look to the left, uh, the academy, look to the right, the academy. Look to the right, the academy. This is a home for 80 families within the next two years, supportive, secure, sustainable, attainable housing. One, two, three bedroom homes. By the way, many of us would qualify for the rent to live in this building. Everything will be in place for the families who move into this building if they need aftercare, if they need a social worker, if they need to know how to get medical care. Everything they need for supportive partnership is here. When the mayor of Riverside said to clergy around Riverside five years ago, come on, people, help us solve this problem. Who do you know? You've heard us tell parts of this story 
We looked to the university. David Garrigus identified several pieces of property. Jim Manning showed us a piece of property. And then we went to the Pacific Union that owns this piece of property. And I said to the treasurer of the Pacific Union, when Jesus comes in clouds of glory, what do you want to say you did with that dirt? Not my most eloquent moment, <laughs> but effective. The Pacific Union owns the property. They will remain the property owners. The building will go up. It costs all of us nothing to put a $50 million housing neighborhood here. It costs us nothing. What it will cost us is in front of us because in a couple years we will have neighbors and they'll need to know the love of God. They've arranged this so carefully that children will live on one side of the building, could look out the window and see the playground of La Sierra Elementary School and say, I'd like to go there. Beautiful, right? Start saving your money then. The people in this building can't afford the tuition at La Sierra Elementary, but some of us can. This Vista de La Sierra this planned community coming to our neighborhood. Friends, dozens of you made this happen. Dozens of you came out to the community meetings. Dozens of you wrote letters. So much so that if you go downtown to the city of Riverside, you can ask our council member, Steve, if this is true. When you go downtown, they will say to you, there is nothing like that community meeting that happened for the building out there in Ward 7. Because project by project, city by city, all around our country. These are the kinds of projects that we're saying no to because we're afraid and because there are myths and because we don't have courage. And unfortunately, it's the Christians that lead those negative causes, but not in your neighborhood. Well done, La Sierra. So our funding is in place. We'll break ground soon. I will be back for a groundbreaking and a ribbon cutting. We, uh, we do this, all of this, because of the generosity of God. We don't put up buildings and open the food pantry and open the wellness warehouse. We don't have Bible study and cafe. We do none of this because of ourselves. Friends, all of this is about God every time. A couple more paragraphs as we close. As I step away today, I can hardly look at you, but that I don't remember your stories. I recall scenes and conversations, tragedies and celebrations. I know where I was standing in a convention center lobby, Heather, when you called and your father died. I know where I pulled off the side of the road, David Johnson, when you called to discuss your mother's last days of her life. I know where I was on a, uh, on a rainy night on Highway 74 when Ruth Fagel asked me to visit Harold and I got a flat tire in the rain and I made it before he passed. Steph and Jeffany McFarlane, I can remember every detail of the hospital room where Bryce and Madison, where you recovered after they were born. Isn't it crazy, friends? I can tell you the name of the first person who died in our community when I came here as a pastor in the year 2000. I can tell you the name, but I'm not going to, because that seems kind of wrong. Um, 
Pastor Stewart and I went to the house to visit together. We walked into the house, and the person who had died was still laying in the bed, and Pastor Stewart whispered in my ear, oh no, if I go down, help me go down easy. <laughs> like, I can't believe we're doing this, Chris. I can tell you about weddings. Yes, Brad and Vung, it was yellow. Everyone wore yellow at your wedding in this, on this platform. Weddings and births and accidents and recoveries and prayers in parking lots and oncology wards. Jethro and Maddie in the ICU with so many others visiting with Pastor Bev. Emergencies I could never have predicted. Phone calls. Pastor, get here quick. Dad is getting out of jail and we need someone to come to the house and get us out safely. I can tell you the house and the name of the children where this happened. I drove through, I, when I drive through the streets of the 92505, it's your lives and your stories that come alive to me. I retirement parties and promotions and more graduations than I could ever count, and I hold your stories with gratitude. Your secrets, your pains, your illnesses, your losses. You asked me to stand in your lives, church family, and you changed mine. I am so lucky. And you did this in 2009, at a time when not one of our college churches in the Seventh-day Adventist tradition would offer or hire a woman as a lead pastor. You did this in 2009. We have 119 Adventist colleges and universities around the world, 12 in North America. You did it when no one else would. Today, there are three of us. Pacific Union College and Pastor Chanda, Kettering College in Ohio, and uh, Pastor Andrea, friends. This is possible not because of me, but because of you. You stepped out with the spirit. You were not being defiant, maybe a little, <laughs> tell the truth. You were not being agitating and uh, political and disrespectful and difficult. You were simply going with the spirit and you asked me to come into your story. And because of this courage, little girls like Maddie Thomas draw pictures of her pastors and it looks like this. <laughs> Thank you for the red shoes, Madeline. <laughs> because sometimes pastors look like this. We have one job. To point everyone's faces towards God. That's it. Amen. Amen. Amen.